Well, you may have noticed that our congregation is about double this morning. Uh, don't get your hopes up. This is all my family. And uh, we're glad they're here today. My brother Jim and Christina's wife and their kids are here today. Uh, Brett and Maya and Hannah, her husband Chad, and my sister Vale, her husband Craig, and their kids uh, uh, Josh and Daniel and Rachel. We haven't seen them in quite a while, so we're glad they're with us today. And for your sakes, we'll do a little bit of review this morning before we start. Uh, We're in Hebrews chapter 9, and the book of Hebrews has some deep stuff in it. Uh, When's the last time you heard a sermon on the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, If you didn't hear it from Hebrews, you probably never did, because this is the only place where it's covered in any kind of detail. And over the last two Communion Sundays, we've been considering Christ Jesus as our high priest. And the book of Hebrews gives us the aspects of that priesthood, uh, comparing it with the Old Testament priesthood. And as the title indicates, it is written to Hebrews or Jewish converts, people who were from the old religion, turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Paul's day, these people were in great danger of going back to the old ways of Judaism, which was still operative uh, in the city of Jerusalem and in synagogues all over the Roman world. And you may wonder, well, why was that? Well, Christianity was not a protected religion under the Roman rule, whereas Judaism was. So a converted Jew would be kicked out of the synagogue. They would face rejection by their family. They would be looked down on in society. They would face the possibility of persecution and possibly lose their source of income and maybe even be martyred. Uh, We don't face quite that kind of persecution in our nation, but maybe it's coming. So we can relate to this, or we may be able to relate to it uh, in days to come. But they were tempted to wonder if it was all worth it. They were even tempted to apostatize and go back to the old religion, the old way, because it was safer. And the writer of Hebrews is warning them of this extreme danger of quitting the faith and showing them now the far superior nature of Christ and the new covenant to which they have stated their belief. And Jesus in the book of Hebrews is shown to be greater than the Old Testament prophets, than the angels in heaven, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than all the Old Testament sacrificial system, and greater than all the old Aaronic priests. Now, we've been dealing specifically with the superiority of Christ to all of that. And in Hebrews chapter 7, we found the superior nature of his priesthood presented because it is uh, from a, a different order, not the Aaronic order, but the Melchizedek order, who was an Old Testament figure or type of Christ. And he's superior in that order because he does not die. He's eternal in nature. And then the rest of chapter 7 shows us the superior provision of Christ's priesthood. The Lord Jesus provides for us a better hope than the Old Testament, a better covenant, a better priesthood, and uh, he is a better priest by virtue of his perfect character, sacrifice, and heavenly ministry. 
Now, chapter 8, we didn't deal with, but that describes further how through Christ the new covenant is far better than the old one. So that leads us to our study today in chapter 9, where we see the superior, uh, superior effect of Christ's sacrifice. The Word of God makes it clear to us that each of us was born with a conscience, that God has in some way burned his law in the hearts of men. Your conscience is that part of you that's sensitive to what is right and to what is wrong. Uh, it's certainly not perfect because uh, you can have a conscience convict you of wrong and, and do the wrong anyways. You can have a conscience that convicts you of something you ought to do and choose not to do it. Uh, but it's that which is within us that just kind of makes us understand there is moral, uh, there are moral choices to make in the world. And sometimes people's consciences are seared and uh, they don't even have that sensibility anymore. Others are very scrupulous and they kind of go overboard in their judgment of things. All of us have experienced the operation of our conscience from childhood. When we do something we know is wrong, or we fail to do something we know is right, we have a sense of guilt about it. We we feel a sense of condemnation, and we might try to get rid of that guilt in some way to ease our conscience. Sometimes we're successful, sometimes we're not. But the real problem of the conscience, which is mentioned a couple times in this passage, is right standing with God. We can do nothing to remove our guilt of sin or ease our conscience before a just and holy God as much as we try. So this is where the sinfulness of man and the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice come together. The Old Testament system of worship and law could not effectively clear the conscience of the worshiper. However, we read in verse 14 of chapter 9 that the blood of Christ does have the power to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And as we look at this passage, let's ask God's blessing on it this morning. Our Heavenly Father, as we become, uh, come before your table today, we're thankful that we have direct access to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful, Lord, that through his shed blood, we are able to come to you in prayer. We are able to worship and serve you this morning. And we're thankful, Lord, that we don't have to have that uh, sense of guilt all the time because we know that Christ has paid the price for our sin. We're thankful, Lord, that our sin's not merely covered over, but it's taken away. And we pray, Lord, we be encouraged as we uh, delve into the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ and how effective his sacrifice was for us to remove our sin and its consequences once and for all. Bless our study, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as the preacher of Hebrews develops his argument here, He makes a comparison between the old and the new. That's what he's been doing for a few chapters now. And he begins by showing in verses 1 through 10, chapter 9, the inferiority of the old covenant way of worship, the old uh, service, the old sacrifice. And Hebrew 
uh, Hebrews chapter 9 draws attention to three areas that compare that Old Testament system and the Lord Jesus Christ, what he's done. And the old is uh, provided for us in its location. It was an earthly sacrifice, or excuse me, an earthly sanctuary. And then we find uh, the means of coming to the Lord was through the shedding of blood. That's why you had to have all those animal sacrifices back in that time. And then thirdly, we see its effect in regard to the conscience is actually not very effective at all. So let's look at that as he presents his argument this morning. In verses 1 through 5, we see the inferiority of the earthly sanctuary. Verse 1, Then indeed, even the first covenant, the Old Testament covenant uh, that God made with his people, a covenant of law, a prescribed way to worship God, It had ordinances of a divine service, a certain way to do things, divine meaning God was behind it, and the earthly sanctuary uh, contrasting or actually figuring the heavenly sanctuary. So we have all these regulations that specified to the Old Testament saints the proper worship of God according to the law outlined for us in Exodus and Leviticus. The Old Testament system of worship took place on earth in that earthly sanctuary. He's dealing now not with the temple that we talked about in Sunday school, but the tabernacle that uh, God uh, uh, prescribed to Moses. And his main domain was, was here in this world. It was divinely ordained, so it was what God wanted for that period of time to the nation of Israel, but it was symbolic, it was figurative, it was typical of better things to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the tabernacle is kind of briefly described for us here, and again, this is something we're not all that familiar with. We didn't live in that time. We don't really see it today. It's, it's gone. It's wiped off the scene because Christ has fulfilled everything that's here. Uh, but let's take a look at this and, and just kind of be reminded of it and uh, think about the figurative nature of it. Verse 2, for a tabernacle was prepared. That's the tabernacle that God told Moses to build as they traveled from place to place in the wilderness. It would be uh, taken down and put back up depending where God led them. And that was the central place of worship. And he describes that for us here uh, in these verses. And in this tabernacle, there were two compartments. There was a place that is called uh, the holy place and then the most holy place. And this is where the priests worked and served God in those Old Testament days. And in the first part of that tabernacle, which is the holy place, we find a lampstand, a table of showbread, and also a golden censer that uh, uh, was always burning, representing the prayers of the saints. So let's think about that for just a moment here. The lampstand was made of pure gold. It had three flowered branches on each side like a candelabra today and a central stem. And on each one of those stems, those branches, would be placed a lamp. That lamp would always be lit. Now, what do you think that lamp was a figure of? Well, 
uh, God is the creator of the world, the first thing he created was what? Light. So it's reflecting the truth that God is light. He provides physical light, which the world needs to, um, uh, uh, to, to be sustained, to live. But also he provides for us spiritual light, a way to know who he is. And this is figurative of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John defined the coming of Christ as a light shining into a dark place, this dark world. Jesus proclaimed, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So it's figurative of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also have the table of showbread here, or often called the bread of the presence. And what the priest would do is they would bake these loaves, they would be purified, and they would, they would be set out every Sabbath day, and uh, they were representative of God's sustenance of his people, taking care of his people on a daily basis. So uh, God cared for his people. He took care of their needs, physically speaking. But this also forecasts the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, who's the giver and sustainer of life. And that life not being physical, but eternal. Do you remember that John also tells the story of the Lord Jesus Christ and the breaking of the loaves, uh, feeding multitudes of people? And in that context, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Again, figurative of these spiritual truths from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the third item was the altar of incense, which was actually right in front of the veil that covered the most holy place, the holiest of all, uh, where the priests entered once a year to bring the sacrifice for the people. And in this place was the Ark of the Covenant. And we're told here that in the Ark was uh, the pot of manna and uh, Aaron's rod which budded to show who had the authority of the priesthood and also the tablets of the law, reminding them that they were a people of law, that God gave them uh, information about what is right, what's wrong, what you do, how you live, and how you don't live. And then resting upon the ark, it says in verse 5, there is a mercy seat. Now above that were the cherubim of glory. Cherubim was an angelic figure. Uh, associated with the tabernacle and the temple of God, just uh, a figure that, that uh, conveys the idea of the presence of God and the angels protecting the holiness of God. That's what we get from uh, the biblical context. And they're there representing the glory of God. Uh, there were two of these figures in that most holy place, but on the lid of the uh, ark, there were also two cherubim facing each other with their wings going over the top, again in a, in a form of protection. And that mercy seat, the mercy seat actually means the place of propitiation, the place where uh, sin was atoned for, and it was only atoned for by the sprinkling of blood. Again, all this is figurative of what Christ would do to take away sin once for all. But that Old Testament um, sacrifice was not effective. 
So here's an explanation of the sanctuary itself, the things in the sanctuary, pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest, uh, but they're not the same as the heavenly sanctuary. Now we come to verse 6. We see the inferior means of approach to God, different than how we can approach today. And out of verse 6, it says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the tabernacles made, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, the holy place, performing the services, the acts that they were involved in, in the worship of God. Okay, so they're doing this on a daily basis. And there were a lot of priests back in that time. There were 24 orders of priests with however many men were in those orders. And you would be very fortunate for your order to come up. And in your order, you'd be one of the priests who could serve God for one week, maybe in your whole life. We're able to serve God every day now. But the priests of that time, they might not have actually been able to serve God in that tabernacle at all in their whole lifetime. And during that week of their service, they would uh, have certain duties in the first part of the sanctuary. They would tend the lamp, which had to be on, uh, um, burning all the time. They would be making sure the altar of incense had incense burning on it all the time, uh, representing the prayers of the saints. Uh, through which we reach God by the blood of Christ. Again, there's a relationship there. And then prepare the showbread. But note it says here that this is something they always had to do. They're performing the the services every single day. Now, in verse 7, we have described that day of atonement, that one day when the high priest alone could enter the most holy place with offering. Into the second part of the the high priest went only once a year, alone, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. All right, so the holy the, the high priest would have to go through all kinds of cleansing ceremonies to do this. He would have to shed Uh, He would have to be cleansed physically. He would have to offer a sacrifice for himself. And then he would go back in again and offer sacrifice for the people uh, one time a year. And it teaches us that access to God was not yet fully provided. It was not disclosed under the old uh, covenant. Access to God was indirect through the mediation of a high priest. And even when that was done, its efficacy was limited. The Holy Spirit, verse 8, indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest or known while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was thus symbolic or figurative for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So it could not even make the high priest who went in there to do this service for the people, it couldn't clear his conscience. It could only cover his sin. It couldn't make him pure and perfect before a just and holy God. 
So access to God was indirect through the mediation of this high priest. And it was an illustration pointing to good things that would come through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that an Old Testament saint could never have a, a clear conscience or an understanding that he was right with God. If he followed the law, if he went through the ritual cleansings uh, for the outer man, uh, they were to be reflective of how he thought on the, as the inner man. And uh, uh, that, was, that was fine. You could have a sense of being right with God. But the full and final sacrifice had not yet been made. And we see here also that it was temporary and external in nature. Verse 10. Concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinance imposed until the time of Reformation. So these are things that were outward. Outward expressions of what the heart was supposed to be. And they were in place until the time of Reformation. Now, what does that mean? Well, Reformation means to restore something to its normal or original condition, such as the resetting of a broken bone, getting uh, your broken bone back in the proper place. But here, it means to bring matters to a satisfactory end. Being, uh, uh, being the new covenant that was brought into being through the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is fulfilling everything that we see in the Old Testament that was uh, broadcast on the outside, but now it can all be done on the inside because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he moves then to the next paragraph, verse 11, to show us the superior nature of Christ's work, of his sacrifice, in comparison to the old that was faulty in so many ways. So let's first of all look at the sanctuary. Let's compare the old with the new. And verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. And we could translate that of the good things that began to come into place when Jesus was here. They haven't totally been fulfilled. Everything still is not complete, uh, but everything begins to be reformed and come into the perfect will of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now our high priest. And this is because uh, of the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So where is this tabernacle? Where is this uh, uh, place where God dwells? Well, it's the heavenly tabernacle. It's not the one on earth. It's not the one of this uh, worldly creation. Uh, when Jesus did his work, it was in the real place, the true tabernacle, the true dwelling place of God, unlike the high priest who operated on earth. And he forever remains there to minister on our behalf. If you look at verse 12, how did he enter or with what did he enter? We, he entered with a superior offering. He's bringing that to the superior place, the tabernacle in heaven. The offering he brings is not animal blood, but his own blood. Not with the blood of goats and calves, 
But with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now you think of the hundreds of years of Old Testament offerings going up before God. How much blood was spilt. Millions of gallons, I would imagine. But when Christ entered the heavenly place in the sacrifice of his own blood, that was the end of it all. Of course, his blood was not literally brought into the presence of God, as some claim today, but it was the means whereby he entered the presence of God and it provides entrance for all who trust in him as their savior. The animal blood could not remove sin. It could only cover it for one more year until Christ would come and he would remove the sin. And the shedding of his blood indicates uh, the efficacy of that sacrifice. And he shed his blood in the garden. He shed his blood when his body was whipped to shreds. He shed his blood when they beat the thorny crown down on his head. He shed his blood when they punched his face uh, to pulp. He shed his blood when they pounded the nails into his hands and feet. And he shed his blood when the soldier stabbed his side after he gave up his spirit. It was that offering up of himself through blood, that provided eternal redemption for us. I'll be reminded that redemption means deliverance through the payment of a ransom. We were under the power of sin. We were under the power of Satan. And Christ released us from that through the payment of a ransom for uh, the shedding of his own blood. That was the price of the ransom. And so we were delivered once and for all from the penalty of our sin through what Christ did on the cross of Calvary. And note something else here, that this was done only once in the heavenly sanctuary. It was an effective payment for our sin once for all. And incidentally, thinking back to the Old Testament sacrifice Uh, Do you remember it said there that this offering was only for sins committed in ignorance? In other words, there was really no Old Testament offering for high-handed, disobedient, rebellious sin. There was a death penalty for that. It wasn't always carried out, but that's what God said. So the Lord Jesus pays for all the sins of the Old Testament saints... Those are no longer covered, they're paid for, they're gone, they're removed. As well as all of our sins, past, present, and future, and all those who will believe in him in ages to come. He paid the price, effective for everyone. We see this further in verses 13 through 14. The superior efficacy or effectiveness of what the Lord Jesus has done. And here he uses an argument of the lesser to the greater. The lesser, of course, is the Old Testament sacrifice or offering. The greater is the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. The inferior blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of the red heifer, they could not purify the flesh. How much more then can the superior nature of Christ's sacrifice do this for us? 
Verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the puring of the flesh. In other words, it met the requirements of God in the Old Testament time. Uh, but, of course, that was uh, to signify your, your inner man and him being cleansed as well. Verse 14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God? In other words, you have a perfect offering. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Well, Christ's sacrifice results in direct access to God, as we've seen previously. Uh, the veil that led into the holiest of all showed us that direct access was not possible in Old Testament times. But when Christ died on the cross, that veil was ripped from top to bottom, uh, literally, and it signified that Christ had made the way of direct access to God, to have our sins forgiven, to have them taken away, to be able to have personal fellowship with God, to be able to pray directly to the Lord. Uh, so uh, uh, Christ gives us direct, unlimited access to the Lord. It also results in a cleansed conscience. It deals with that problem of, of constantly wondering if you're right with God. Dead works indicate the wrong things that we do that end up in death. Uh, our guilt or our remorse for such things will never make our conscience free from the guilt. It will never lift the burden caused by sin because only Christ can do that. I want to share with you an illustration as we close this morning. It kind of bears this out. A man by the name of Albert Speer was the Hitler confidant whose technological genius was uh, uh, credited with keeping Nazi factories humming during World War II. And after the war, he was the only one of 24 war criminals tried at Nuremberg who actually admitted his guilt. He spent 20 years in Spandau prison for his crimes, and he wrote about his experiences and was later interviewed by ABC's Good Morning America. And the interviewer asked this question, you have said the guilt can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? So his conscience was active. He was constantly being condemned for what he had done. And this was his answer. I served a sentence of 20 years, and I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time of punishment. But I can't do that. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime, and I can't get rid of it. The interviewer goes on, and he says, you don't really think you'll be able to clear it totally? And Spear shook his head, and he said, I don't think it's possible. So here's a man whose 
weighed down with the guilt of his sin, and humanly speaking, he can't get rid of it. He's like so many others who seek some kind of expiation, a clean conscience, but they can't find it in themselves. So we ought to be really glad today that the blood of Christ is able to cleanse you from the inside out and take care of that conscious issue. And I hope today you have experienced the sense of relief and the lifting of the burden, the realization of forgiveness that comes with salvation. There are a lot of things that we can learn from what the Lord says here in this passage of Scripture. And the first thing is that God desires to be approached. He wants to be our God, and he wants us to be his people. Even in the Old Testament system of worship, that truth is conveyed. Although the sacrifices could not take away sin, they could cover them up until the one came who would take them away. And the same thing is true today. The Lord wants us to come to him. He desires our fellowship, our worship, our prayers, our service. But we have a problem. We have this access to God that has a twofold difficulty. And the first is seen through the eyes of God, his holiness. We cannot come ourselves before a just and holy and perfect God. We have limited access. The Old Testament clearly shows the holiness of God was not accessible to his people. Could not approach him uh, directly. And he cannot be approached directly. You have to come to him in a certain way. And that way, of course, is Christ. The only way we can come is by humbling ourselves, admitting our sinfulness, our need of a Savior, and trusting Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Because of what Christ has done, though, when we do sense that guilt over sins we commit, because we're not perfected yet, how do we get rid of the guilt? How to get back right with God and have that sense of rightness in Well, uh, the Holy Spirit, who now rules your conscience, convicts you of that sin, and the Lord says you simply need to confess it and get back right with him. And that will clear your conscience. Again, it's through what Christ has done, through his blood, through the payment of his sin. And I think from this passage, we do have to remember when we think of who it's written to and the time period that there's always an ever-present danger even for those who are of faith. The temptation of these people was to go back to the old way, the old system, the old religion. It would be easier to do that. There wouldn't be so much tension in your life. And some of us may face those kind of temptations if if you were saved older in your life. You know what it was like before you got saved. But most of us here today grew up in a Christian home. So that apply to us? Well, yeah. Because, you see, the temptation is to go a way that you were not exposed to, to go the way of the world, to go the way uh, of the philosophy of life without Christ, 
There's a temptation to go that way, even though you weren't brought up in that way. You can go uh, uh, and, and seek the selfish pleasure of the world. It's fashions, it's music, it's disregard for God's holiness and purity. But Christ saved us from all that. We don't go serve in that context. Christ came to change our direction in life that we might have the pleasure and the joy in serving the living God. You'll never find that joy and that pleasure out there in what the world offers. So we'll be thankful that Jesus is our high priest that offered up the once-for-all sacrifice that puts us in direct access to God. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful today for what Christ has done to draw us into your kingdom, to deal once for all with the guilt of sin and the result of sin, which is death. We're thankful, Lord, that we can come to him at any time, any place, uh, to have our sins forgiven when we're convicted of them, to uh, receive the strength we need to go through difficult times, to stand up when we're uh, persecuted. And Lord, we we are thankful that uh, you have given us your spirit as well to guide and direct us in the difficulties of life. So Lord, if we come before your table today, help us to be thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ who has become our high priest to deal with these important issues of life. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.